0: His goal is to break the back of NATO and to separate Europe from the United States and, in his mind, rebuild greater Mother Russia.
1: At the 2022 Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC, I sat down with former Trump Deputy National Security Advisor Katie McFarland, author of Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People
0: this shambolic withdrawal from Afghanistan really showed Putin that this was his moment.
1: We discussed Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Vladimir Putin's broader ambitions, and threats from communist China.
0: 20 years we've been sleepwalking. We've been preoccupied by the forever wars in the Middle East. And we've lost track of the real strategic threat to the United States,
1: which I do believe is China. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Jan Jekielek. KT McFarland, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders.
0: I am honored to be part of this conversation, and I must tell you, for me, your Thought Leaders series is must-watch TV, must-read transcripts. You really are doing a great job, and you do it in such a thoughtful, thorough way that I don't know how anybody walks away from watching a half an hour with you with anything other than the right conclusion.
1: <laughs> well that's that I, I I love that. I, I should you're hired, you know. <laughs> no, but in but in all seriousness, I mean, I feel like we're kind of in a fog of information around this war yeah. in Ukraine. Yes. You know, Russia has invaded the Ukraine. We know that. Uh, we're getting bits and pieces of information. Um, There's been a whole bunch of policy affected. We're being told this policy is supposed to have certain kinds of effects. Other people are saying this is preposterous, this is not going to do anything. What are you seeing happening right now?
0: Well, I would say a couple of things in the immediate sense. Nobody expected the Ukrainian people, or army, or president, to be as courageous as they've been. I think I and a lot of other people assume that the Russians had a coup set up and everything would be kind of in, out, done 24, 48 hours. That's not happened and God bless the Ukrainian people. And so it's been much more difficult than Vladimir Putin had anticipated. Um, I think the inevitable outcome is that Russia controls Ukraine. You know, Vladimir Putin is in position to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. Sadly, I think the die was cast a year ago of the fate of Ukraine. And that's for a couple of reasons. You know, one, when America was energy independent, a couple of things happened. One, we could export energy. We had enough, we could export to Europe. And number two, the price of oil was kept very low, $40 a barrel a year ago. And what that meant was two things. One, the Russians didn't have a lot of extra money in the coffers. You know, war is not cheap. War is expensive. And so Vladimir Putin could not have afforded a war a year ago. But since we, the United States, under the Biden administration, shut down, in effect, American oil and natural gas industries stopped exporting it, that meant that the price predictably doubled, and now and often it's going to probably start tripling. So all of a sudden, Russia has twice as much money in the in the bank as it thought, even three times as much as they did a year ago. So it's given them that cushion to wage war against Ukraine. But the second thing it's given them is 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 the power and the blackmail power and leverage over Europe. Um, once the United States again, we started shutting down our American energy industry, but at the same time gave the green light to the Russian energy industry. That gave Russia a a chokehold over the European economy and particularly over the German economy. So it meant Russia had money and it had leverage, so it could neutralize any criticism or any action the Europeans were going to take were they to choose to support Ukraine. They just couldn't. No German chancellor is going to say to the German people, well, by the way, the price of oil is going to double and you're not going to have any electricity in your home. It just couldn't happen. So it put Putin in a position where he could do whatever he wanted whenever he wanted to with Ukraine.
1: You would think, right, if Europe and the US were very serious, they would use absolutely every tool at their disposal. What are the tools that are available, the most important tools?
0: Well, one would be kicking Russia out of the international banking system. And Germany is so far, and France as well, and and Italy to a certain extent have been reluctant to really allow that to happen. The really important tool the United States could use right now that we could control is energy, is oil and natural gas. If we turn that oil and natural gas on, what happens? Well, the price of oil and natural gas goes down, Russia's broke again, can't afford a lot of more wars. The other thing that happens is that I think if President Biden would go to the American people and say, look, the national security situation of the United States is such that I'm going to reverse my decision, and I am going to allow oil and natural gas to be produced in the United States and, number two, exported. And then he could go to the Germans and the Europeans and say, you know, you've been reluctant to buy American liquefied natural gas in the past. You preferred Russian energy supplies, but look what it's costing you, not just in money. But the leverage the Russians have over your economy. Do you really want Russia to control your economies? No, you don't. So I think if we went to the Europeans and said to them, we got your back. We will give you energy security. You can buy cheap, clean, no strings attached American liquefied natural gas we will help you buy american liquefied natural gas it would put you know i think the europeans are now ready after the last couple of weeks ready to reconsider where they want to get their energy from and then i think finally president biden could go to the russians and say we're going to produce energy we're going to drive that price of oil and natural gas in half you're going to be broke you're not going to have leverage over europe we're going to go to our saudi friends we're going to encourage them to pump more gas uh, more oil and then you're not going to be in a position to make a whole lot of trouble for anybody that's what the united states could do it's not a direct thing i mean you know so many times in national security issues people think oh it's war or peace well there are a lot of other think outside the box economic diplomatic other pressures that can be brought to bear and th- this is the time that requires to think outside the box
1: from the people that i've talked to, and certainly this was the case with me personally, I'm not an expert. Almost nobody expected Putin to invade Ukraine. It was unexpected. I don't know. Do you, I don't know no, what you were I thinking. I
0: honestly thought, I mean, I knew he would do something. I thought he would do, at a minimum, would take the two eastern provinces and occupy them and pretend with a false flag operation. And then he would do to them what he did with Crimea. He would annex them. At the next step, I thought he's probably going to organize a coup in Kiev, so get rid of Zelensky, get a pro-Russian puppet in there. But I did not think he would go the whole full extent which he has done. And why did I think that? Because I thought he might run it. He, if it, he Putin, who is a ruthless dictator and murderous thug, he's also pretty shrewd. And so I thought he would look at that and think, gee, maybe it would be risky, it would be messy if you invade, there would be civilian casualties. And I think that's exactly what's happened. He's invaded and it's not been what he thought it would be. He thought he would be in and out, that he would control Ukraine within a couple of days and that is not the case.
1: Well, so, so this is the question then. You know, a lot of us really didn't expect it. Correct. Right. And so, why did he choose to actually make the move, as opposed to, you know, what some of the, the, a very common mantra that I heard, including on a show, on Cash's Corner, a show I co-host, is that he'll come to kind of the one-inch line try to get, get as many benefits for himself as he can, but he's not really going to go to battle. Why did he decide to actually do it? What were the factors? Well, I that, can't
0: get inside his brain. Yes,
1: no, but, but, but you have some ideas.
0: <laughs> well, I've studied Vladimir Putin for decades. Yes. And if you go back and, and look at his life and where his ambitions have been, and, his, and he's been quite consistent about what his ambitions are. I mean, he was in the KGB during the Cold War. Soviet Union collapses in the late 1980s, early 1990s. He retires from the KGB, goes to grad school, and with an eye to a political future, he wrote a dissertation about how to make Russia great again. And the dissertation, he talks about taking Russian energy resources out of the hands of the oligarchs who were controlling them in the 1990s, bringing them back under the control of the Russian national government investing in infrastructure of those energy industries, laying pipelines, and then they would, then Russia, controlling the energy, could use that, the revenues they would get from exported energy to rebuild the Russian social welfare system, the Russian military, just rebuild Russia. And then as well, having the political leverage they would have that they would accrue. You know, it's, it's really funny. At this In the 1980s and 1990s, Ronald Reagan warned the Europeans. He said, don't you guys get those pipelines built? If you do, you are going to be dependent upon Russia. And of course, that's really what's happened. And Putin understood that. So he's followed that plan for 30 years in his political career with his goal. And he's quite clear his goal is to destroy NATO. His goal is to break the back of NATO and to separate. Europe from the United States, and in his mind, rebuild Greater Mother Russia. Even President Biden said it this week. He feels Vladimir Putin wants to recreate the Soviet Union, and I think Biden
1: is right. It's fascinating that he's kind of everything you described in his thesis is kind of like what he has done. That that's that's quite amazing. You know, you hear about, for example. and the Chinese, with the Chinese regime, you you read unrestricted warfare, for example, and you're thinking, "Hey, look, they gave us the playbook ahead of time." It's like, but, but I think in America, people think people don't do that. They don't tell you everything they're going to do. They're going to tell you all the methods they used and how they use them. Anyway, Here's the thing. Yeah. You
0: know, Jan, don't believe what a democratically elected leader tells you. Often he'll say whatever he needs to do to win the next election. Always believe a dictator because he can do whatever he wants, and he has no problem telling you in advance what his nefarious goals are, and that's the same case with whether it's Putin, whether it was Adolf Hitler, or whether it's with the Chinese.
1: So, tell me about the role of NATO here. So why is Putin so bent on breaking NATO?
0: A couple of reasons. One, um, because he looks at NATO really as an instrument of the United States, and he has said in the past. The greatest tragedy of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Union, when overnight a great empire was was destroyed. So part of it is payback time, that he wants to destroy the unit that destroyed his mother Russia and the Soviet Union. But I think also he understands that, you know, Russia doesn't have allies or friends, right? It has subject nations, whether it was During the Soviet era, none of those countries were equal to Russia. They all took their orders from Moscow. China, again, China doesn't have allies. China has vassals. What does the United States have that nobody else has? Allies, friends, like-minded countries. We don't all agree on everything, and we fall out all the time, but at the end of the day, our alliances are the strongest part of our our national security, our economic security, our political security, our diplomatic security. And so I think that Putin understands that. And if he can pick us off one at a time, divide NATO, then he can get what he wants of a greater Russia, emasculate the European nations. And I think the Chinese have the exact same goal, that they want to pick us off one at a time. They do not want, they are threatened by our alliances because our alliances are the greatest strength that we have. And so the way they get at all of these different countries is one at a time.
1: Interesting. Okay, and so with respect to NATO, you know, I understand that Poland, Estonia and a few other countries are invoking Article 4 of Article NATO, four. so t- what, what, what is that and what does it mean?
0: Article 4 says that any NATO member that feels his security is about to be threatened can call upon the other NATO members to talk about it. It doesn't say that to bring a call in the Marines, it just says, that it it can call a meeting, so to speak. And I think that's what some of those countries, especially the countries on the Russian border, are now going to do. I mean, NATO is already meeting about this. The Russians, I think that if Russia has a success with Ukraine, um, that it looks like they get Ukraine without a whole lot of problems, then I think they eye the Baltic nations. Those three, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, they're small. They're easily taken by Russia. If you look at a map, there's Russia. And then there's something called the Sowalki Cor- corridor, which is like a road, and it's about a two-hour drive. And on the on the end of that two-hour drive is Kaliningrad, which is on the Baltic Sea. So Russia might decide, okay, Ukraine done deal. Not a name NATO member. Nobody really took my took me seriously about that. Maybe what I'll do is really try to break the back of NATO, and then drive Russian tanks across that Suwalki corridor, and then all of a sudden, within a f- day or so, could control Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and then tell NATO, okay, what are you going to do now? And then would NATO, I don't know. Would NATO rise and go to war with Russia? I don't know. Would Germany be willing to, to jeopardize this energy relationship with Russia over the Baltic nations? I don't know.
1: Well, I guess, and so, are do you feel at this point, you know, you're, you're, this war is expensive? It I is heard, expensive. Um, there's high energy, with high energy prices, it's possible they, those might be lowered. Given that this is taking longer, at least by definitely, a number of like, analysts definitely. that have told me that, including yourself, than he expected, are any other countries actually... In, under threat from Russia at this point or is he well, preoccupied with Ukraine
0: but what happens when he's finished with Ukraine well you tell me if the price of oil is high he's just replenishing the coffers that's why I think it is essential that the United States gets in back into energy production energy independence and drive the price of oil down you know one of the reasons the United States we have such high levels of inflation right now is because of the high price of oil it's the same thing that happened in the 1970s when there was an oil embargo where the Middle East countries stopped selling oil to the United States as a p- punishment for the United States' relationship with Israel. As a result of that, inflation went sky-high. Um, and I think that that's what the Russians are doing today as a result of our energy—well, the fact that we gave up energy independence, that's why we have inflation.
1: Well, that, what's really interesting about this to me, too, is that it, you could this is one of those things you could just turn on, like fairly quickly. Yeah, you quickly. could do it pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, well, and the, but with inflation, maybe you can kind of explain to me the relationship because I, I certainly a, a wild amount of money has been printed over the last couple of years. I mean, like like truly astounding amounts of money have been printed, and there's been this uh, you know stimulus and and everything. So I was always imagining inflation has to do with that. You're saying it also has to do with well, the, lack so of the, production. To the price of energy. I, explain how that works.
0: All right, so oil and natural gas prices go up. That means gasoline prices go up. If you're someone who needs to buy gasoline to put in your tank to go to work, you're paying a lot more for it than you were before. There are also shortages of it. There's a world energy shortage. There certainly is in Europe. Um, They're having an energy crisis in the sense they can't get oil and natural gas. They can't get gasoline. I mean, remember just a couple of months ago, we were talking about rationing gasoline in the United States? And we've certainly seen the price double, triple in some cases. So that leads to inflation. You have right. to pay more for energy. Yes. That means you have to pay more if you're going to transport your product from where you make it in Memphis to where you're going to sell it in Houston. And so the price of that gets driven because up. Because that energy is, exactly. energy is in
1: everything. It's energy is in everything. I mean, okay. not only that. Yeah. but
0: And oil is, in fact, the petroleum products. There are a number of pharmaceutical industries and and um, cosmetic industries, et cetera, that use oil and petroleum as a base, um, as a raw material. I mean, including even North Face jackets. Remember when North Face said, we are gonna be pure, we are not going to advertise those nasty oil companies until someone pointed out, oops, most of your North Face jackets are made for petroleum products. So, a high price of energy, high price of gasoline, it, it just filters into everything. That's part of it. The other part is the supply chain shortages. I think in many ways forced on us by China, that China, what China is exporting to the United States mysteriously was slow to arrive. So there were shortages that also brings the price of inflation up. And then finally, as you point out, the Biden administration is spending money like drunken sailors and they're putting an awful lot of money into the hands of people who have been locked up for two years, and so there's been pent-up demand. All those three things have led to inflation, but the one thing we would have control over pretty quickly is the price of energy.
1: Okay, so well, let's talk about this piece of the equation now. Was this preventable? Okay, so, you know, of course, hindsight is twenty twenty always, right? However, um, you know, what... what policies do you see as having contributed to emboldening Putin, if any? Or is it was it just well, a foregone the conclusion?
0: No, yeah. no. I mean it was absolutely yeah. preventable. This did not happen when Donald Trump was president, right? The price of oil was low. Yeah. Um, so that so
1: that single decision no, probably is the that, most that, important. That
0: was the single most the biggest okay. strategic mistake the Biden administration did was to shut down American energy. Uh, so that would be number one. Putin wouldn't have had the extra money to do it. But the other thing is, if you look at the timeline, so Biden gets into office, he shuts down fracking oil and natural gas, shuts down the um, the exports. Number two, the Russians start hacking into American corporations, you know, colonial pipelines, et cetera. There was no punishment for that. In fact, when President Biden met in the early summer with Vladimir Putin, met in Europe, he said a couple of things. One, go ahead with your pipeline, your Nord Stream 2 pipeline, by the same time, we're shutting down the American Keystone Pipeline. That was number one. And number two, he scolded Putin. He didn't actually even scold him. I mean, he didn't hold him accountable for anything with the hacking that had already occurred. He just gave them a list of, what was it, 16, 17 vital American industries and said, don't you dare hack any of those. And he, so there was no punishment of what Putin had done prior to that and certainly you know, vague threats of what the United States would do. And I think, frankly that when Joe Biden keeps saying, well, you know, I know Vladimir Putin. I've worked with him for years. He's known me for years. I think that's true. And I think that when Putin met with Biden, the man he saw was older in a certain cognitive decline. And I think Putin thought at that point, okay, maybe this is my moment. I'm getting rich. I've got leverage over Europe. I see a president who I think is weak to start with and is weak again. And this is the same president who was vice president when Putin took Crimea. And so now Biden is president, maybe it's time. But then I think the shambolic withdrawal from Afghanistan really showed Putin that this was his moment. Because it was about that time that Putin came out with his very large, long manifesto saying Ukraine uh, is not an independent nation. Ukraine is part of Russia. And that's when Putin started moving his troops on the border. All of those things... Each one led to another, and it was a domino effect. It was a cascading series of events which have emboldened Putin.
1: I mean, it's really interesting to think that the initial domino, probably though, was this the energy cost going up. But, well, and obviously because it changed the, their equation so dramatically, right? And that's
0: in a year. You know, I look back, I I was a member of the Reagan administration when we won the Cold War, and one of the ways, well, the way we won the Cold War was President Reagan also understood the energy calculation. We couldn't afford to be energy independent then. We didn't have the energy resources or technology. But what President Reagan did was he convinced the Saudis and other Gulf Arab nations to pump more oil. So the price of oil went from $40 a barrel to $18 a barrel in nine months. Again, Russia was broke. Then the second thing Reagan did was he denied access of the of the Soviet Union to the banking system so they couldn't borrow any money and the third thing that he did was deny the technology that America was developing denied the technology it's called technology transfer technology high tech to go to Russia so in the 1980s the Russians did, they didn't even have xerox machines they were still doing those old carbon copies things where you had anyway so as a result of that russia was pushed into bankruptcy russia didn't have access to any loans even to buy to borrow money for the wheat harvest that had failed and then when the united states had russia in that position then we had the missile defense program, the Star Wars program, which I was very involved with at the Pentagon. And at that point, the Russians threw up their hands and said, well, we can't compete with the United States in a, in a race for a Star Wars system. And that was the end of the Soviet Union. That playbook is still valid. And the way to, to deal with Putin now to stop the next power grab he's going to do, bankrupt him with energy prices. Um, number two, make sure he doesn't have access to the international banking system. And then number three, don't let American technology head to Moscow.
1: So you're saying that this could be over in the matter of days? I think in that, Ukraine, that's yes. what I'm hearing. Yes, right as well. It might even be over before we actually fil- you yes, know, I put sadly, out this put yes. out this show. So I, I guess there's this other question. Let's say, you know, I, I don't know where things will end up. It's actually a, a bit of a question right now. There might. Russia might have a, a much greater or a lesser level of control over Ukraine, though it looks like it is probably going to keep some of it. Yes. Um, what happens afterwards? First of all, is this the end of what they call Pax Americana? I've heard that said.
0: Well, the Chinese think it's the end of Pax Americana. And they certainly, if you went to most countries in the world right now, sadly, I think the impression number of them is America is in decline. Um, maybe the guys in Washington don't think so, but I think a number of countries think we're in decline. But a number of countries have thought we were in decline before. Um, during the, the 1970s, America was thought to be in decline. If you go back and even our leading you know, Nobel laureate economist said, oh, the Soviet system is so much superior to the American system. Oh, the Soviet military is so much stronger than the American military. And America's pretty good at turning things around. I mean, I, the book that I wrote um, called Revolution, one of the things that my story was that I was in the Trump administration, I left, I went um, out of the country, I did some real thinking and I realized that America goes through these periods of regeneration and it happens with amazing regularity every 40 years. And it's because our founding fathers understood that we were a very dynamic society, that we would have immigrants, right? Brilliant immigrants like you, Yan. That we would constantly be a nation reinventing itself, whether it was technologically or geographically or demographically or ethnically. And we would always, because government, the nature of government is always to be a status quo and to kind of hang on to the power it has. But the American people would be changing. So that about every 40 years, we're kind of disconnected. The government isn't getting its job done. It isn't representing the needs of the people. So we have political revolutions. And we did it in the original American Revolution in 1776. We did it again in the 1830s with the Jacksonian Revolution. We did it again during the Civil War. We did it again during the Industrial Revolution. We did it again after the Great Depression. We did it again with Reagan. And I think Trump initiated this this round today. So I think that the countries of the world may think America's in decline. They've written us off a lot of times before. And I really do think that what we're seeing in the nation today, which is a massive grassroots movement around the United States, I think that the corner has turned. That a year ago, it was all destroy American culture, Americans terrible, we should all feel guilty about everything, we're terrible. But I think that that national mood is changing. And that's why you're seeing President Biden suffering the opinion polls that he has. It's because America, grassroots America, always, always comes back and rearranges the government of the United States, putting new people, new ideas. And frankly, that's our greatness. We reinvent ourselves. Nobody else reinvents ourselves, right? Every other country, rise, shine, decline. We rise, shine, we decline a little bit, and then we come right back. Better than ever.
1: I I love that message. Now, why is it that the Chinese think that it's the end of Pax Americana? Why did you say that?
0: Well, the Chinese have been peddling to the world the idea that America's finished and that the inevitable wave of the future is not free markets, it is not democracy, it is authoritarian governments. Democracies are ill-equipped to deal with the modern technological era and so follow the Chinese model. Um, and the Chinese, you know, they've been pretty successful at peddling that. And if you looked at Washington right now, we're all arguing with everybody about everything, you would have to say, gee, I wonder if democracy is really, you know, a functioning democracy in the 21st century. But to me, the Chinese are wrong. And it's why? is because, you know, a suppressive system that China has is never going to allow the free flow of ideas. The great thing about America is we are inventive, we are creative, we are constantly sort of looking for the next thing. The Chinese can't do that. That's why the Chinese, if you look at, for example, the micro, the chips, the microchips, we're inventing them here in America, and then they're manufacturing them someplace else. All the great developments happen in America first the chinese this is why the chinese have to steal our technology right they're not they can't do it themselves
1: well and, and certainly a lot of uh, the people who are the creative thinkers are actually we know you know like i'm thinking about you know harvard nanotechnology you know top people in the world that been working for china and, and many 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 others right to develop their technologies. And this is, I guess, this is kind of the, the, the threat or the, the fear that a lot of people have is that the American, somehow they've managed to hijack the American ingenuity as well that Not comes from long. the free market. Not okay. for long. I think okay. the one
0: thing, whether you love Donald Trump, you hate Donald Trump, the one thing he really did was wake up the American people to the threat of China. Now, for 20 years, we've been sleepwalking, we've been preoccupied by the forever wars in the Middle East. And we've lost track of the real strategic threat to the United States, which I do believe is China. And whether Republican or Democrat, the only thing Republicans and Democrats agree on right now is that China does present the major strategic threat to the United States.
1: I mean, a lot has been said about China watching how the US dealt with Afghanistan, is dealing with Ukraine. you know, of course China has ambitions on Taiwan and it's, you know, it's clear at some point, unclear when, yes. it wants to and definitely- unclear and unclear how. And unclear how. unclear yes, how, yeah. Yes, that's true. What you, would you expect China is thinking or planning at this moment? I mean, you are talking about the Chinese regime, of course, here.
0: You know, I think they're overreaching. Here, Here's how. So China has this plan where it's going to have the dominant, they're trying to create a Euro, uh, Eurasian trade route, right? whether one belt, one road, whether it's the maritime trade route for the South China Sea. They want to dominate the technologies of the future. So China, in this ambition, it has gone around to countries around the world, poorer countries, and it said to some of them, let's make a deal. We're going to build you a port. We'll use Chinese technology. We're going to lend you all the money to have it. And you're going to be rich because of this port. It's going to be great for you.
1: Oh, and by the way, the ports have to be able to handle Chinese naval vessels. Eventually. By the way. Well,
0: they never say yeah. that. No, they. So what okay. they do is they have a little bit of 10% for the big guy. You know, the corrupt leader gets it. And the Chinese, get. if you read the fine print, it says, we're going to seize the asset if you can't pay. And so the Chinese give them loan shark rates. The country can't pay. And then the Chinese say oh, by the way, that port should now be able to be used by the Chinese Navy. I mean, they're doing that all around the world. The strong arm policies of the Chinese are starting to, people are starting to wake up. And the country I would give as a great example is Australia. Mighty Australia. You know, 10 years ago, five years ago, people said, well, Australia, Chinese own that one. They've been bought and sold. The Chinese are all over the Australian universities, et cetera. And then in the, in the middle of the pandemic, the, the Australians joined a hundred other nations to make an innocuous request that the World Health Organization look into the origins of COVID, mostly so we can study it, figure out how to not have it happen again. The Chinese went ballistic. And they said to Australia, don't you dare criticize us. And they gave Australia a 13, 14 point plan of what they expected the Australians to do or else. And in the plan was the Chinese the Chinese said, Australia government cannot criticize China. Um, Australia, your free and independent newspapers, they can't criticize China. And um, Australian academic institutions, you have to let us have whatever we want to have on those academic institutions. So Australia, which everyone assumed was going to back down because Australia's major export partner is China. Australia said, no, hell no. And as a result, the Chinese tried to crush them economically, not import uh, Australian barley, not import Australian beef or Australia wine. But the Australians are standing up to it. Other countries are watching this. And I think that the Chinese overreach, they call it wolf warrior diplomacy, I think other countries are now saying, hmm, maybe we want to rethink Chinese domination.
1: Well, except at this point, I mean, arguably, right? Arguably, Putin... Russia has invaded Ukraine, isn't the Chinese regime thinking, hey, maybe we can keep overreaching now? I don't know. Like This is is what I'm hearing analysts say. But here's
0: the the thing about autocracies or dictatorships, whatever you want to call them, they always overreach. They always overreach and they always get slapped back. So it's the same thing, right? Putin is overreaching with Ukraine and he's showing the Germans and the other Europeans, gee, maybe we don't want to be dependent upon Russia for our energy, maybe we'll now reconsider and think of American energy. The same thing is happening in Asia, where Australia and other countries are saying, hmm, maybe this looks really terrific, this initial relationship with China, but maybe we need to reconsider it. And that's the opportunity for American diplomacy and American um, economic power is to, again, as I said a bit ago, allies, we have allies. They may not have appreciated us recently, but they may be taking a second look at the importance of America as a strong economic and security ally.
1: Well, Katie McFarland, it's such a pleasure to have you on again.
0: It's always a pleasure for you. You know, I always come away with interviews from you, Jan, being exhausted mentally, but having had a terrific workout. So thank you.
1: Fantastic. Well, looking forward to the next one.
0: Me too. Thank you.
1: We live in an age of censorship and disinformation where some of the most prominent voices, most important voices, aren't actually being heard because they're being suppressed. I invite some of these people onto the show, onto American Thought Leaders. So to stay up to date on the most recent episodes and our exclusive content, you can actually sign up for our newsletter at theepochtimes.com slash newsletter. Just hit the checkbox for American Thought Leaders.
0: Thank you.